And I used to say all the time that like, I, I think, you know, artists, obviously their, their fans in some sense are their customers. So when people win Grammys, they say, I want to thank all my fans or whatever. I actually felt very lucky though, in that whenever we'd meet, not everyone, but when we'd meet our fans, I always like really liked our fans. Like, in some way the people our, you wanted to hang out with yeah like our music ended up being a magnet for people that we actually liked and that was sort of weird because it's like you know how is this somehow coming through in the art hey y'all welcome back to stories from the influencer economy this is ryan williams so excited you're here for episode number 114 my guest is d.a wallach this episode is a great one. want to remind everyone before we jump in to go to InfluencerEconomy.com. That is my website. You can find all the past 113 free podcast archives. I talk to mega investors like Brad Feld, prolific authors like Seth Godin and Adam Grant, and online video creators like Veronica Belmont. All the archives are available on the website. And I'm also giving away a free chapter of my Influencer Economy book. The book is about how to launch share and thrive with your business in the new economy. The free chapters on how to find your big vision for your business. Go to influencereconomy.com to get the free chapter, influencereconomy.com. Without further ado, DA Wallach, you're going to walk away inspired from this episode. I certainly was. It made me want to do tons of different things on Hey everyone, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy. It's Ryan Williams here with D.A. Wallach. Welcome, D.A. Thank you. So you are a artist, a tech startup investor, and also were an early investor and advisor at Spotify, which many people know is the most popular or if not one of the most popular streaming apps for music. That's right. Um, so when you go to a coffee shop and you're meeting someone... And they ask you, what you're up to? How do you describe what you do? Well, it's changed a lot over the years, which reflects the sort of intro uh, you just gave. So seven, eight years ago, I would have said I'm a full-time touring rock musician. And then progressively, I have devoted more and more of my time to business. So Spotify was this sort of pivot for me where I was for a couple of years still making a lot of music, but then devoting maybe a quarter or half of my time to helping bring Spotify to the U.S. And then uh, starting about three years ago, I basically became a full-time investor, and now that's what I spend most of my time doing. And we have something in common. Originally, you are from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yes. I'm from the Midwest, Des Moines, Iowa. Yes, sir. So what do you think from your Midwest roots? Because I have a lot of things I... I hold true to me from the Midwest. Like, what do you yeah. think from the Midwest you still carry with you? Well, you know, the Midwest is like no BS. So no ulterior motives. What you see is what you get. Be nice to people. Um, I think those are kind of Midwestern values. Yeah. And there's a sort of deep egalitarian sensibility in the Midwest that, you know, Everyone's on the same footing, and uh, it doesn't matter if you work in a factory or you own the factory. You're no better than anyone else. So um, I think that's a Midwestern ethos that um, you know rings true to me. I feel like Midwesterners, to that point about treating everyone equally in a way that's egalitarian, is people 
in the Midwest, like if you're the janitor or the CEO of a company, I feel like at least where I grew up in Des Moines, yeah, generally people conduct business with you and treat you the same way, no matter what your title would be. I think that's right. Hopefully it is. Yeah, for me at least. I try to do that. Yeah, no, me too. And um, certainly a less popular outlook on life in other parts of the country. Um, let's talk about you know your music career. I started playing music in middle school, and I was a drummer through middle school and high school. And then I went to college in 2003 and started a band called Chester French my freshman year. And I got beat out by another guy to be the drummer for that band and became a singer at that point. So, so the, you applied to be in, or auditioned for yeah, the band? Yeah, I auditioned to be the drummer, basically. The guy who beat me, coincidentally, turned out to be our generation's sort of greatest young filmmaker, Damien Chazelle, who just won um, an Oscar for La La Land. Oh, wow. And uh, anyways, Damien beat me to be our drummer, and I became a singer, and then... Um, and then, you know, started singing freshman year and worked on that, you know, all of college. And then that was my job. And Damien was in the band after college as well? Damien and our keyboard player, Justin, dropped out of the band sophomore year. Not in an acrimonious way, but uh, Damien wanted to work on movies, which I thought was a terrible idea. But <laughs> he was right. And, um, and Justin, who was our keyboard player, became both a comedy writer and a composer and has been enormously successful at both of those things. And so then you graduate from college, and you're playing... I, I remember when Chester French debuted, my buddy really liked you all. Okay, wow. And, uh, you got weird friends. He was really into like Vampire Weekend and a lot of like indie rock bands. Yeah. So the, for those who haven't heard Chester French, what's the music genre? Well, the... When we were doing it, we thought, oh, we're, we're going to be like nothing else before or after. But upon reflection and retrospect, essentially what we were trying to triangulate were sort of our favorite 60s rock bands, Beatles, Zombies, um, The Kinks, stuff like that, and Outkast and 90s hip-hop, basically. So we were, um, we were trying to write essentially 60s type pop songs three minute verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus format pop songs but produce them in such a way that there was a kind of visceral sonic impact to them that you know in other music you wouldn't have found till later in musical history and in particular in sort of 90s 2000s era hip-hop so um our outlook creatively was always to try and cross genre barriers that we, we never liked genres we never respected it as musicians both me and my bandmate max were super influenced by a huge variety of music and we wanted the band to be this kind of home for similarly interdisciplinary music fans and so what's it like you know for i can't even imagine i'm out of college and i'm in a band touring and before the call or before the, the conversation here, we're talking about how you had to sell a certain lifestyle because yeah, it wasn't just like yeah. be, you said you were like on the first uh, wave of social media and how you couldn't just say, hey, I'm making this music buy a ticket. It's like, no, we're a band and this is what we do. And you have to, you know, permeate in a certain way that it really resonates with people. Well, social media was the central 
factor in our early success. So we got lucky in that we were freshmen at Harvard the year Facebook came out. So through no great foresight of my own, I was one of the first 2,000 users of Facebook in the world. And by the second week it was out, we were trying to figure out how to use this thing to build our audience just on campus. So we rode this you know, emergence of Facebook, which very quickly created a distribution network to other universities as it expanded. And then as Facebook was coming out, MySpace was still enormous. Right. So, you know, Facebook came out in 2003 when we were freshmen in college. By our senior year, 2007, when we were graduating, MySpace was still yeah, the totally. predominant vehicle for us to exhibit our music and build our audience. And MySpace, in a certain way, was kind of built for that. You know, it was like from L.A. It was all sorts of bands on there. People's top eight was effectively this oh, billboard right. for you as an artist that you could try and get in people's top eights. And so we we really like MySpace was our vehicle. And then we also got on Twitter very, very early. So I started using it. It was just an SMS-based service. Right. And it was useless because no one was on it. TWTR. Exactly. Was the first name of yeah. Twitter. And, um, and then by the end of our senior year, Twitter was starting to pick up. And so I even remember Twitter was one of the guys who founded it, Evan Williams, had created his prior company was a music streaming, basically it was SoundCloud uh -huh. called Odeo. Right. And we, we were using Odeo. Oh, no Odeo. way. So, and they, Twitter pivoted. Yeah. Because Odeo was going to go against Apple's podcasting yep. yeah. platform. And they were like, nope, not going to beat Apple. And you used Odeo? You were, we were using Odeo. One of the early adopters? Yeah. Well, you know, look, we were using Odeo and it was kind of like a few people used Odeo. And then Twitter came out. And Twitter was so early that, you know, when I like emailed tech support, it was like Evan Williams was writing back. Yeah. So the reason all of these tools were so attractive to us was, I mean, no one knew how to use them. There weren't best practices. There weren't social media strategies or whatever. It was just this new the shit. The wild you west. Could. You got to figure and it so out. The advantage for us was, you know, sort of prior to those years, if you had a band in college or if you just had a band and you were, you know, a random dude in your mid twenties or thirties in some of these East coast cities, like you got a van you hopped in your van and you drove around to colleges playing shows in your van. And we didn't have that luxury because we had the other luxury of like being in school and needing to focus on that. And so these social networking services for us were like the only possible way of reaching the outside world with our music. And, um, you know, to that end, it was like our only shot. If we wanted to try and build a following as musicians, these were the best available means to do so. Well, you, br you bring up, like, that was a really good answer to a question. I was not expecting you to be at the forefront of Facebook because you went to Harvard with Mark Zuckerberg. MySpace was still popular. The startup around 2007, we had got acquired by Disney to run social media analytics. We built our proof of concept on building MySpace pages and adding friends. Right. Like comedians and getting, yeah, yeah. getting added back was always a big right. thing, right? Yeah. And then you would have these friends and they were such a vanity metric. They were really mm -hmm. superficial. Yeah. Because there's no way to quantify 
But if you had a team of interns of people just adding friends and friend after friend, there was some perceived value that you had some importance. Yeah. And then Twitter, I mean, it's amazing you worked at Odeo because yeah. very few people know Twitter wasn't even what it, it wasn't this broadcasting tool. It was an audio system like SoundCloud for right. podcasting or, right. or music. And so then now it's the status quo. Now, if you're not on social media and you're a band anywhere, like to your point, you have like that was your avenue to get out and not have to go on tour everywhere in a van. But now that's all people have. So there's a lot of hope because people can take everything into their own hands. But equally, just because everyone has can get on the bus and, you know, do things online on their own like dime and time, then there's no guarantee. And so what do you think people now that are musicians, are they feeling hopeful because there's all these channels of opportunity or are they feeling like, holy crap, it's so noisy. How do I break out? Well, um, I'm not sure exactly how they're feeling, but the barriers to being heard are certainly lower than they ever were. And that was true when we started too. I mean, it's just been a one-way street towards easier to publish, whether you're a musician or a writer or a podcaster or whatever. To your point, the uh, sort of ubiquity economy, as people describe it, as opposed to the scarcity economy right. of media, is one in which this because podcast it's easy is all to publish, about the influencer economy. It's, yeah. all, it's all about the economies. Okay, let's put fancy words on. Well, love it. Uh, you know, whatever you call it, there are a lot of people who now have the ability to make themselves heard. Whether they actually get heard or not is a different story. But I think uh, net net, it's a great deal. I mean. You know, certainly what it replaced was uh, more problematic, which was that, you know, you essentially yeah. needed the sign off of certain gatekeepers in any of these industries if you even wanted to publish in the first place. And so you can think of it as moving from centralized forms of authority in media distribution to decentralized ones where, you know, now you need a groundswell of people to find your shit interesting if you want it to reach any sort of scale. But uh, I'm not sure that anyone knows what the magic formula to that is. It's, you know, do people like your thing? There's art, there's science, timing. And so early adoption was a big part of the book. Uh, I have a whole chapter on, you know, early adoption and how being curious around technology is a defining characteristic of someone who's influential now. And we talked about this previously about you know, influence is really making a dent in the world. Mm. And it's really, for me, it's like Googling someone's name in 20 years, because I'm assuming Google will still exist, and their name will pop up and all these great influential achievements will pop up. Mm. And it's not just like a no talent, zero on Instagram, who's gotten a bunch of likes because he or she is sexy in blue jeans. Because if you look at influential people on U on YouTube even, like sometimes their audience, could, it could be like a sexy, you know, person making holler videos around makeup tutorials. Mm -hmm. But if their audience is going to be 80% guys watching someone hot do makeup, that's not really the right targeted demographic or really where the brand would need to go if they wanted to do an, a, an advertising deal. Mm -hmm. And so for you, like, what's your definition of someone who is an influencer? Well, I think it is. Uh, it depends on influencing what, you know. And so, 
the world has a lot of different domains in it. You know, you can be influential in a very silent, anonymous way. Um, a lot of the entrepreneurs I work with, I think, are doing things that can be deeply influential, even if no one will ever hear of them, you know, just by building products that end up being used by a lot of people. That's a significant example of influence. And um, what we tend to think of in in the language of influencers and the influence economy and all of this are people who have influence specifically in the media domain or who are essentially... Uh, more significant than others in framing and driving the conversation in whatever their field is. So, you know, as I've moved both into the investment world and then more recently into the healthcare and life sciences communities, you find that you've got 60, 70 year old scientists who are prolific Twitter users or our president, you know, that's certainly influential. If, if you are framing uh, the narrative that everyone is discussing in whatever your field is by, you know, cleverly leveraging these tools, then I think that's influential. And then, you know, getting into like your career pivot after Chester French, the band, you know, you, you took it far. I mean, you've, you've played all over the world. You've published albums. You've collaborated with Pharrell, like all these people that are name brand household people. Like what was your pivot into working at Spotify? Well, I was always interested while doing the band in the music industry. I mean, both because that was our ecosystem as artists, but also because if you care about art, you also have to care about the way that art is distributed and experienced. And there's a dance that goes on between the actual, you know, it's like Marshall McLuhan stuff. The medium is the message. Or, yeah. You know, uh, so it was very clear to me that the music industry was poised to go through another transition. You know, you could say that the first significant one of my lifetime, at least, was Napster and peer-to-peer um, -peer music services. And that really unleashed an incredible amount of chaos in the music industry. It ultimately shrunk the music industry to a small fraction of its prior size. And essentially what had happened was people stopped paying for music because technology enabled them to get the music without paying for it. Right. And what was interesting to me was that I lived on both sides of that. I was a fan in middle school. So when I was 12 or 13, Napster came out and I was a super user. And I loved it because it, it fueled my addiction. You were to, downloading in your bedroom at home. Oh, yeah. And... I mean, but I, I could never have afforded all the music I consumed and I consumed so much music that I kind of owed my musical passion to these tools. So I appreciated that they were such a beautiful thing right. for a 13-year-old in Wisconsin who wanted to hear every David Bowie album ever um, in like one sitting for free. But then as I became an artist, I encountered the sort of dark side of it, which you know wasn't a secret. You know, People like Metallica had been making a big fuss about it for decades, but I, you know, professionally entered an industry that had been totally eviscerated and no one, by could people make, like you, by people like me, no one could make <laughs> any money. Yeah. And the reason they couldn't make any money was because music fans didn't spend money. Right. So, you know, no 
cash was flowing into this lake. Yeah. And yet it was making you fired up about music in Madison, Wisconsin. That's right. And so as we became professional artists after college, you know, and confronted the reality that this was now the economy in which we had to make a living, I was always preoccupied with where's this industry going? How's it going to change? And in particular, does the internet or network technologies or the mobile internet, do they uh, herald in a new era where artists can actually control their own destiny more and can have a more intimate relationship with their audience? So as I described the social media stuff we were doing as a band, some of it was practical, but there was also a kind of philosophical aspect to it, which was that I felt like part of the art was becoming the relationship we had with our audience. Right. It wasn't just this thing where, you know, we went and toiled in a back room, made a record, and then every three years you'd put it out and all these people would see it. I mean, 30, 40 years ago, when Led Zeppelin would put out albums, their picture wasn't on the album. People would go to the concert to find out what they looked like. Mm -hmm. And so you went from this culture of anonymity and mystery and all this stuff in music, which was really super cool, to this new era where it was almost like the more you opened the kimono, the more engaging that was to fans. It was the inverse of it. And so we, we had tried to build this very direct relationship with our audience where, I mean, I was literally, I knew these people. Yeah. I knew tens of thousands of people, you know, even if I didn't know them by name you or whatever. You knew their avatar, their username. Yeah, you knew their avatar. You kind of had a... You saw 20 tweets from this one person. Totally. You're like, oh, that's you. Like, thank you for coming to my show. And it, it actually felt like a community. Yeah. And I used to say all the time that, like, I, I think, you know, artists, obviously, they're, they're fans in some sense are their customers. So when people win Grammys, they say, I want to thank all my fans or whatever. I actually felt very lucky, though, in that whenever we'd meet, not everyone, but when we'd meet our fans, I always, like, really liked our fans. Like, in some way... The people our, you wanted to hang out with. Yeah, like, our music ended up being a magnet for people that we actually liked. And that was sort of weird, because it's like, you know, how is this somehow coming through in the art? But, anyways, to return to... Well, that's what I find with, yeah. you, you know, studying YouTube creators. Yeah. And, I like, the big... Big like I'm going. I'm speaking on a panel at VidCon, uh, the YouTube conference in Anaheim in two weeks, and I used to go. To, I went to the first one. So yeah. the first chapter of my book, I talk about these two guys called the Vlog Brothers. Hmm. This guy named Hank Green, John Green, mm -hmm. and um, John Green uh, wrote A Fault in the Stars, the book, which right. became a big yeah, movie. Yeah. His brother Hank just is an amazing entrepreneur and doing a lot of do-it-yourself services for creators mm -hmm. to help. Uh, mm -hmm. To help them make money and sell merchandise. And so they uh, did VidCon. It was in Century City, Los Angeles. It was a small conference for YouTube stars to meet their fans with some brands coming in. So Machinima was a sponsor. And they had less than 1,000 people. But the fans there were like best friends with right. the creators. And this yep. was early. This was like two ten, 2010. Yeah. Right? So it's on the early adoption spectrum for you and social media. That's when, that's when YouTube really started to change. 2010, 2011. And... They called them the their friend base, mm. not the fan base. Mm -hmm. Because these people, they just showed up and they were like them and they all had their own reasons for and their own affinities for being a part of these communities. 
But that really is what separates a community from an audience or from mm-hmm. just people that buy tickets because they do have those networks that connect. And, and there are, like, I, I'm curious about people finding you through the music that were like you. That was never your intention. No, no. It happened unexpectedly. Yeah. And, um, and it was a great thing. It was really, I mean, that was a very rewarding experience to find that we liked our fans. That's crazy. I mean, it's almost yeah. like you're surprised. A little bit. Because you're like, you didn't, it was like a, a nice byproduct or. It was a nice byproduct. And surprise. And then, so t- to get back to your, your Spotify question. Yeah. The first time I learned about Spotify was this sort of aha moment because I've thought I've always wanted essentially this and it was just in Sweden and you wanted the service you wanted the service I wanted yeah I wanted this well you know as a music collector I had hard drives upon hard drives of you know huge amounts of music I collected and that was always the worst like you lose your laptop terrible and you'd say lost my music and all my photos yep you know where to store either. And every time I switched computers, it was like a four-day migration yeah. process. Yeah. So when I found out that this thing existed where you could get anything ever, whenever you wanted it, on demand, it was almost too good to be true. And so I tried it out, and I found myself totally enamored with the product. And that led to me hunting down Daniel, who was the founder of the company, and building a relationship with some of the key folks who had started the business. And... Did you meet them through your music industry connections? It was, you know, like everything. It was just a web of people who, you know, I'd say, like, I really want to meet the Spotify guys, and someone knew someone who knew someone. Ultimately, my friend, who now a very good friend named Shaquille Khan, who was one of Spotify's first investors, uh, met me in L.A., and we hit it off, and that turned into the opportunity. And so... Which I want to pause yeah. and cut... I want to keep hearing your story, but I'd love to talk to you uh, later about how you build your communities and your networks okay. now. Because I think that's something that, like people that work in the tech industry, they know how to help others and really mm-hmm. vibe with people in a way that they build a connection and mm-hmm. that maybe living in Des Moines, Iowa, where I grew up, right? they maybe feel like you're helpless a little bit to connect with others, mm. but you can actually still network right? digitally or going to conferences so let's hold this okay and get back to it but that was that's great you're explaining how you connect with others yeah and so you got to daniel and got to daniel and you know sort of fell even more deeply in love with the idea that now was the time that this could happen it's a swedish company yes and um then rolled my sleeves up and got involved and and the project was get this into the u.s and then help artists understand that it is their potential salvation and not the enemy. And Spotify, for a variety of reasons, was, I think, misinterpreted by a lot of folks as a threat to artists and to their livelihoods. And in reality, it's been the opposite of that. That was what I strongly suspected it would be and and really fervently advocated for years. But... It was a long process of convincing artists that uh, this could really restore the industry. It's fascinating hear you hearing this story because it sounds like Spotify came along and you're like, well, I was really into social media early. It made our band succeed and, you know, more or less because you had that connection with the audience. Then you were went to a good college and you were passionate about music. You were from the Napster generation. 
Yeah. It's like if you could roll up a job, that would be it. Oh, man. I mean, it was it was such a dream for me. And, you know, as my interests were shifting towards technology more and more, I mean, I've always been kind of a computer nerd, but I... Uh, I really wanted to be an investor and I wanted to be involved in the next generation of basic technology development. And so as a guy in a band, Spotify was this once in a lifetime opportunity. Like if you could to, engineer a company. Yeah. It's like if you could engineer a, a significant other, a wife, a husband. Yeah. People have this, you know, dream. Like right. literally this is the engineered for you. Oh man. And, yeah. It was fabulous. That's so fascinating. Yeah. And so you met him, you vibed, you invested, and then you became an advisor? Yes. Um, and then ended up building a team of folks that were responsible for educating artists and building a connection between the creative community and the company. And there was, went in both directions. And there was some avarance for people that were artists, like you're saying, maybe threatened by Spotify. So you're educating them. Yeah, well, in, you know, Spotify's model... And, you know, listeners, I'm sure, will maybe remember this. It's still the case. You can get on Spotify right. for free. This podcast is on Spotify. Perfect. We were one of the first podcasts. Really? We were we piloted it because they were oh, looking for evergreen business that's podcasts. That's early adopting. So. Yeah. So <laughs> so we got, we were there super early. So I would right. get emails from well-known YouTube creators that uh -huh. were starting podcasting asking, like, what the hell, Ryan? How'd right. you get this? Right. I was like, you got to have the, <laughs> the Evergreen Business Podcast and that's what they wanted. Um, well, hats off to you for, for jumping on it. Anyways, it, it well, was I just feel like a lot sell. of people are frustrated in general. Like the dissatisfaction of people in their careers yeah. is huge. Yeah. And careers are changing. Yep. People don't always adapt to the new environment. So you, you had some self-awareness to say, hey, my music's taking me this far. Yep. I know that in 50 years, maybe I want to work in technology for the long haul. Like I, you had a long-term goal mm -hmm. and then you made it happen through your network and the people you had grown relationships with over the years to meet with this ideal company that you could partner with. And I think that there's something to be said for that, that we are often dissatisfied with our work to the point where people are stuck at this dead end job and then you sort of kind of fall into something new based on passion, expertise, networking. And it's like all these separate parts of your life came together for Spotify. Yeah. Which is totally inspiring because oh, man. Well, so, so many people, lucky. so many, yeah, so many people don't have that luck, but you can still make that the case. Maybe you won't get a full-time job, Yeah, but you could still make part of your income, you know, part of something that you like to do. Or I feel like so much of it is art fulfilled with what we do professionally. Mm -hmm. And you were able to leverage all this hard work you put in into something really cool. And then now, where are you with your career after that experience? Yeah, well, you know, I worked on Spotify really diligently for several years. And once we sort of felt, or at least I felt like it was kind of mission accomplished, you know, the service had grown really significantly and was now the number one streaming service for music. It had kind of become clear that we were right, that this was going to grow the industry and account for increasingly larger share of the income that artists could generate from their music. And at that point, it kind of felt like my work was done. And I had also... How long were you there for? Uh, about four years, okay. four and a half years. And alongside it, I was building my experience as an investor, um, playing with my own money. Not a lot of it, but 
making small investments in other companies that I thought could be really important in whatever area they were operating in. And uh, I kind of had concluded like, now I'm ready to be a grown up investor. And so a few years ago started this investment fund and turned my view out to other areas besides music and media. In fact, since uh, Spotify, I have totally abstained from any investments in music or media. Okay. I sort of felt like that was a good one. Yeah. And like go out on a high note. And um, my interests have shifted more and more towards healthcare and medicine and trying to find cures for uh, some of the more vaccine diseases that afflict us. And are those investments you're making in nonprofits or companies that are building solutions? Like how do you, for, for medicine yeah, especially? Yeah, pretty much all in, in companies. And so the starting point for that interest is that I feel like we're still in an era that is defined by computation and network computation, but we're moving into an era that's going to be more and more defined by our relationship with biology and how that relationship changes. And that's driven by our enhanced understanding of how living things work. And with better understanding of how living things work, we gain new powers to actually manipulate life. And I think that's going to be central to the largest technological story that transforms human experience in the rest of my lifetime. And so, you know, that's kind of where my interests are. And I look for businesses that are, for the most part, taking some cool scientific idea that has grown up in academia, and then they're trying to figure out a way of turning those concepts or technologies into businesses, and in particular businesses that can help people in- Is there an example of, of one to share? Well, one I'm, extremely excited about is a company called uh, Emulate. And Emulate is focused on building these little physical models of human organs or human diseases that you can actually study in a lab environment. So, you know, if I wanted to study what's going on with your kidneys right now, it would be damn near impossible because we, we can't put cameras in your body and look at it. We can't control what nutrients are flowing through your blood at the point of your kidneys. We can't give you a disease and then take away the disease. Right. We, we can't do controlled experimentation in living systems. Yeah. The best we have are animals that we can, we can study, like mice models or monkeys. These things are used in drug development. I, I just dissected a pig in yeah. Des Moines, Iowa, my freshman Whoa. year. Yep. Like that's, so like, yeah. That's how we learn. Yeah, that's all we, yeah. So this company builds these little, essentially tiny simulators, physical simulators of human organ systems. And they seemingly behave in very accurate, realistic ways that let you take a very precise view of biological processes uh, at a very, very small scale, at a microscopic scale. And um, what they're doing is incredibly cool and could open up all sorts of possibilities for human health, drug development, personalized medicine. So then when you are solving health problems, what, where is, where does your curiosity come from with that? Especially because from music to technology and music, with Spotify to investing, like why are you curious about that topic? Well, a common thread for me is that I'm interested in systems. I love studying systems. 
whether those systems are economies or industries or a cell, these are all networks that are defined by a lot of moving pieces interacting in incredibly complex ways. And what's interesting to me about all of these types of systems is that we don't understand them very well. So, but, but they're so central to our lives and to our societies. And so there are a set of tools, mathematical tools and computational tools and theoretical tools that allow us to sort of build a picture of how these things work and theorize them. And I think that that's at the frontier of human understanding in all of these different domains. And my curiosity sort of just arises from the fact that they're mysteries, that they're mysterious. Not understanding them well gives us a very clear motivation, which is we'd like to understand them better. What's your definition of a system? Well, I think, uh, I, don't, I don't have a, a tidy one. Like related but, to your music or you know, yeah. your past work? Like what kind of systems were you working in back then? Well, I guess the way I thought about it then, the systems were kind of cultural systems or they were social networks or they were, you know, it was, we were always interested in how do you, how do you scalably build an audience? What are the rules that govern how culture spreads? You know, can you, you brought up this point that, you know, on, in, in the early days of MySpace, the more followers you had, the more followers you'd get. Yeah. And, you know, there were researchers, Jonah Peretti, who's oh, yeah. founded Buzzfeed. BuzzFeed, a guy named Duncan Watts, who was at Columbia, did this amazing research back then where they were essentially having people look at lists of artists and they would create fake, fake rankings where they'd, they'd rank the artists by how many times the songs had been heard. And I, I'm not going to summarize it well, but essentially what they found was that when you gave random people the chance to rate a song, they actually thought a song was better if it had been listened to more times. Oh, totally. So if you're an artist, that becomes an important fact yeah. about human psychology right. that, you know, it's not just the quality of your music. It's also the fact that your listeners are socially situated in networks, be it online or among friends, in the real world, whatever. And their position in those networks and the way those networks function will actually significantly determine what happens with these artifacts you put it's out amazing. into these systems. Psychologically, like yeah. if someone sends you a YouTube video, the identical video of Chester French, yeah. and it has a million views, yep. the exact same video with a hundred views, inherently I'll share that one with a million views, yep. right? Because totally, it's I'm not gonna be the leader of sharing this video that no one's watched, but it's easier to be a follower and say, well, it's already doing well. That's it must right. be cool, yep. like psychologically. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said. I call them hustle points. Mm. Or like, I hate the word hustle. So it's like obnoxiously overused. Yeah. Yeah, not, yeah. not like influencer. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, been yeah. stolen. No, exactly. That's, that was go. stolen. Hustle was always <laughs> annoying. But hustle is really obnoxious. However, hustle points are like the vanity metrics mm. you need to show social proof that mm -hmm. there's an acceptance broadly within a community of, of people within a network that give a crap about what you do. Right. And for me, with my podcast, it was iTunes rankings. And so I would always figure out ways to barter with people to leave me an, an honest review or testimonials if you're a business, you know, on your website. You know, people like I have 100 plus Amazon reviews for my book and I got I'm, it's going to be distributed into Korean. 
I just signed the deal like last week. You know, international stuff Congrats. with music. It's like yeah. so exciting. They only found me because I have tons of Amazon reviews. Right. So these hustle points matter because psychologically, my book looks more important if I have 104, four and a half, even if like it has four and a half out of five stars, not right. five exactly. And so I love that system you just set up because there is some perception of media consumption that the more qualified it is with something tangible like a view or a stream, the more likely you're going to think like subconsciously that it is better than others with don't, that don't have those metrics. Exactly. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's right. And so for you in the systems, let's talk about, you know, a couple, couple questions here about just kind of like how you've cultivated your business and your work. Let's talk about building a network and it's a boring topic, but people love to know like ways they can kind of reach out to, to influential people. Like, so you work with Ron Burkle, who's a big investor. Yeah. Like how, how did you meet someone like him and how do you find your authority that you're not an expert in finance like he is, but yet he still respects you as a partner? Well, um, I met Ron through Puff Daddy, sort of a strange connection, okay. but uh, I met Puff years ago backstage at a concert we played in New York, and he and I hit it off and became friends, and then years later, uh, he invited me as his guest to a party here in LA, and I sat next to Ron, who's now my investing partner, and Ron is a legendary investor, and so uh, for me, I don't really... I don't really think about networking and I don't I don't put a ton of effort into keeping up relationships necessarily. I just try to follow my curiosity and um my curiosity sort of leads me to collect people. So I think of uh of my relationships with people much less as an effort to become a part of their lives than as an effort to add people who I'm interested by to my collection. Yeah. And I really think of it like a collection. Like a bench. Like, uh, I really, and, and not, not to play certain parts or something like, you're my finance guy and yeah. you're my whatever guy. You know, like, I just like people and I like smart, interesting people who stimulate me and give me new ideas and are fun to talk to. And so when I meet them, I kind of feel like, okay, you're, Go, you're in my collection now. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm just in incredibly lucky to have friends who in some cases are, you know, doing some of the most interesting things in the world. And, you know, they're a constant source of inspiration and learning for me. I like that term collection because you're not devaluing the relationship. You're not putting a number on it. There's no monetary value. You're just saying you're a part of the community. You're part of my broader, um, like even network cheapens it because yeah. the collection is something like an art gallery has, like you hand select the people that are in that collection and you treasure it mm -hmm. because you want to respect those relationships. So you mentioned being guided by curiosity to keep up with people. Because mm -hmm. um, some people I know are very methodical. Mm. Like they have a database right. of people that are like everyone they meet. So they go to a party they're like, oh, DA, we met two years right, ago. Right. You just got married. How's your wife? You right. know, and they are very calculated. Kind of salesy. Yeah. Yep. But they look at everyone as a, a, a ticket. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so how how do you keep that curiosity 
to to you know keep the relationship. Well, it's like you know it's that Midwest thing, right? You know, if if you think of everyone as being equal, then you respect people as ends in their own right, and you don't think of people as means, you know. And so it's like, um, I never think of people as their job, you know. And I think I've been treated that way, as I think probably everyone has, you know, where whether it was in the context of Spotify or something else, you know it becomes obvious that someone is treating you a particular way because to them you are Spotify and it's not, it's not you as a person, you know, how do so, I, how do I get featured on Spotify? Yeah. You know, what do we like? Which people... is fine. I mean, it's fine in the context. I mean, you know, if, if someone works at Spotify, then by all means, you know, that's something that it's totally reasonable to ask them. Yeah. Um, but there's a difference in inflection between actually liking people and building relationships with them because you enjoy spending time together on the one hand and then on the other viewing people as instrumental to your agenda and um i don't know i think people have a pretty good nose for that i certainly feel that when someone's putting off that vibe and it doesn't feel good no so uh you know it's just the smell test yeah yeah does it smell rotten? Oh, I need to throw it away. I think years ago, you know, I made a decision that at that point I knew, you know, I, I do have a database, but it's to keep track of people's addresses so that I can, you know, send them things or whatever. Do you and, send physical notes to people? Yeah, yeah. Like thank you notes? Yeah, and, yeah. I like, you know, not, um, I, I just like stationary and things yeah. like that you know it's just a fun experience and i like getting notes and i, I like writing too and you know it's people uh, that you've met you've enjoyed the conversation and yeah absolutely i think that um you know despite having a database or what i mean it's you know it's a, what a rolodex used to be um and i just get so frustrated with phone address books that i <laughs> find myself pushed that way but um, you know, I don't keep up with people who I don't like, you know, I know, I know so many people who I do like that you never, you know, if, if, if you feel that you have to maintain relationships with people for some reason, other than that you like them and enjoy spending time with them, then it's, they're, they're, those are not going to be good relationships. Um, and you're not going to enjoy it. Life's too short, so why spend time with people you don't like? And so how do you manage working with people you're friends with to maintain? Because I feel like a lot of this new economy is like you work with people that aren't assholes. Mm. You work with people that you like, mm -hmm. but there's a healthy balance between, like you're in a band with your friends. Mm -hmm. A lot of bands burn out. Metallica, yeah. you mentioned before, great example. They went to group therapy. Right. Right? Because you yep. you're in college with buddies and you're... Smoking weed in your freshman hall is a lot different than you're in a band in your 20s and right. you're trying to do this for a living. So how, would you learn anything from that experience as to like how to collaborate with your friends? Well, collaborations are hard. And, you know, my, my bandmate Max and all the guys who were in Chester French were all still friends. And I think that's owed to, you know, the same behaviors that lead to all kinds of good relationships, honesty, open communication, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. And so how, how do you think that people listening, like if you're, if you were to like you, so you were in Wisconsin and you left Wisconsin to go to Harvard, it, you pirated music in your parents' house growing up and that really shaped a lot of who you are. Like if someone's listening to this and they're 
living in Wisconsin or Des Moines and they want to do something different. Like, mm-hmm. and we talked about, you know, Brad Feld has been on the podcast and he says barrier of entry is low with blogging or podcasting right. and, you know, building a product is a lot cheaper now yeah. just to do something to stimulate yourself. Like I always recommend people, they have an idea, they buy a web domain mm-hmm. and then write a blog post about it. Right. And even if they don't share that blog post with anyone, they can come back to it in a year. Right. And say, I thought oh, I that, that then, maybe now I can do it. And that's mm-hmm. what I did with my book. I bought the yeah. influencer economy domain now six it's years ago. Korea. Yeah, now it's good. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. Exactly. It's awesome. Um, so you have any advice for people like that? Just as a, one of the final questions, I feel like, you know, because you know, like I know what it's like growing up in Des Moines. Mm-hmm. I was lucky. My parents really yeah. helped shape my vision to the world. Mm-hmm. But not everyone has that type of structure. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, people's fears and insecurities uh, hold them back often. You know, certainly I feel like mine have or do, and I think that's kind of true of all of us. And so I, I always try to keep in mind, you know, the whatever the aphorism is that everyone is the main character in their own movie. So if you're walking around with an inferiority complex that you're from, you know, Canton, Ohio, and you think that's a no-name place, and you think you're a nobody, and you think you didn't go to a fancy college, and you think no one else is thinking that. In fact, none of the people you're encountering or could encounter or could cold email on the internet is thinking about you at all. Yeah. They don't care. Right. They're thinking about themselves and their life and the fact that their daughter's got ballet tonight and they've got to be here by, you know, and so I just think that, um, you know, putting a lid on all of those kind of negative self-defeating thoughts um, is a really important thing for people to do if they have some dream. And, you know, if, if you have an idea, I used to say this about my band and, you know, I encounter this in entrepreneurs now as an investor. If you have really high conviction that something you want to do makes sense, you, you get to a point where it either does make sense or you're nuts, basically. Yeah, right. And if you're nuts, then hopefully you figure that out relatively soon and you stop doing it or other people tell you or whatever. We've all had the friend who's terrible at singing or whatever and they want to be a singer. And, you know, like in some situations, it's not that you need to fail harder. It's that you suck and yeah. you should stop. Yeah. But, you know, for the most part, if you got an idea and it actually does make sense and you actually are qualified to do it, then the world doesn't tend to stand in your way. You know, I mean, the world seems to select for things that make sense. Yeah. And um, reduce the friction to things that may, the things that make sense to do or in a market sense that people are demanding are relatively easy to get done. And you'll self-correct. Yeah. Because you'll listen to the market, you listen to people and, oh wait, I'm getting a lot of feedback that this thing's working. I'll keep doing that. I mean, it wasn't, it, it, it was hard to build Uber or Spotify or whatever, but, you know, after, after you saw a million people subscribe to Spotify and become addicted, you kind of sense that the, the world is, is demanding this. Yeah. You know, and in an economy, demand wins. When people demand something, 
the economy kind of self-configures to try and give it to them. So, you know, if you're starting a company or if you're making music or if you're doing something, I think the most important thing is to really understand whether there is demand for it. And if there is, then your idea is confirmed relatively quickly. I, I love think. it. Yeah, no, I like it. And uh, I we have one final question for yeah. you, but I'm going to do a quick wrap up of what I really enjoyed and learned about this conversation. One is uh -oh. you like to look at things as systems and kind of fixing and optimizing systems, whether it's health, whether it's social media for your band, whether it's helping technology enhance the you know careers of artists, musicians. Uh, I love talking about people as your friends and your network as a collection because that word itself means something. I'm going to credit you when I use, oh, good. When I use that. Hey, don't even need to. And how collections are really like I hate the word curated. It's so pompous, but they're hand right. they're hand picked. It's like a craft beer. You know, you want to collect a good beer uh, stash, and then you also uh, have an ability to um, play the long game with your 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 viewpoints towards life and understand where to pivot. And so, final question on that is: Yes, you you just teased us with when you met Puff Daddy behind the scenes at one of your shows, and then you met Ron Burkle years later because of that relationship. Yeah. Can you can you contextualize what's it like being in a band a couple years out of college and Puff Daddy's backstage at a show and you guys are, <laughs> are ch chatting it up? Um, kind of surreal. You know, I mean, I, I feel like um, I've uh, been lucky enough to have a series of surreal experiences. And, you know... If, if life doesn't feel constantly surreal enough, I don't feel like I'm doing the right thing, you know? And so the same feeling that I got, you know, meeting Puff Daddy or playing a concert to an audience bigger than I'd ever seen before, uh, you know, now I get the similar feeling from sitting down with a brilliant scientist and you know, having the pleasure of getting them to walk me through their work and how they think about the problems they focus on. And it's equally rewarding. It's the sense of being in the presence of greatness and being in the presence of someone who knows something I don't and um, can potentially teach me that thing. And so, you know, I just chase that high all the time, just always chasing the things I don't know, trying to satiate curiosity and, you know, I feel like myself as long as I'm doing that. And when I don't do that, I get really bored and miserable. So, yeah. So it's surreal meeting Puff. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, he was a part of my life without knowing it for yeah. <laughs> decades before that point. Yeah. So you're like, oh, I know everything about you. And yeah. How do we talk? Because yeah. you know nothing about me. That's right. All right, cool. DA, thanks for having me. Hey, such a pleasure. At the home studio. Talk to you soon.